Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hi, Luminous Writers. Welcome to this series on writing with disabilities and limitations. It's a run of episodes that should go for about eight episodes in total. As of this booking, I'm looking ahead of my calendar here. In this episode, I sit down with a wonderful member of my Writerly Love membership community, Chantelle Powell, a two-spirit author, artist, and self-described swamp hag who grew up on the land and off the grid. Her publication credits include Augur, Solar Punk Magazine, Metastellar, The Deadlands, and honestly, just keep racking up. We talk about how she does this in the episode, and she has a great hack for writers with ADHD to track submissions that I think is brilliant and would be useful to many writers, myself included, not just those with ADHD. We get into her often very visceral writing. She reads a piece that I would describe that way, visceral, and we speculate a little about why that flavor comes out in her work. And for this series and focus, we talk about how she works with her various limitations and disabilities, which include neurodivergence and now long COVID, among other conditions and limitations. Listen to hear from a singular writer whose writing practice shows that there is not one way to be a writer. So I want to welcome you, Shan, to the podcast. As you know, this series is focused on writers who write with limitations and writers who write with a disability or identify as disabled. Uh, we've also thrown in the term spoonie, neurodivergent. So how do you publicly identify yourself? What's in your writing bio? And how do you come to this identity or way of expressing yourself within your lived experience? Well, on my Mastodon profile, I describe myself as neurospicy and a spoonie. But I never really started identifying as disabled until a couple of years ago. And that's when I was briefly working with a researcher on the topic of disability pride. But until then, I'd always presumed a disabled person was someone who had it a lot worse than I did. It seemed to me that disabled people were other people, not me. And I couldn't claim that because that's only for people who need wheelchairs or something. That's what I thought. But as I thought about it, I realized that I've always had disabilities as far back as I can remember. For instance, I couldn't walk properly when I was a small child and I had to wear orthopedic shoes and I had severe chronic ear aches and explosive nosebleeds. I was always sick. I had severe pain in my knees due to cartilage damage and couldn't really bend my knees more than about oh, 90 degrees without pain, 45 degrees, I'll say. 
And I've also had chronic gut issues and headaches all my life. But somehow I brushed all this aside as more like a temporary inconvenience, even though they've always affected me and occasionally left me unable to do things that most people take for granted. And these days, being postmenopausal and dealing with post-COVID brain fog have only added to my collection of ailments. But my writing bio doesn't generally include this stuff unless I happen to be writing for a journal about disability or mental health issues. And it's not that I'm ashamed of it because I'm, I'm really not. It's just that there's limited space in author bios. And I really don't find my disabilities to be the most interesting thing about myself. Yeah, I love that, Shen. And you mentioned a bit about how limitations and disability have impacted your life over the span of your life. But then also I'm wondering about how it's impacted your writing, both creatively and in practice. On high pain days, for example, I find it difficult to impossible to get any writing done. And some days all you can do is just kind of curl up in a ball and wait for it to go away. The same goes on days when the brain fog is especially thick. I do have an unusual neurological condition called scintillating scotoma. You know when you look at a really bright spot and then look away and there's these blind spots just sort of floating around in your vision? It's kind of like that, but it can include even things like uh, what look like fireworks going off in my peripheral vision. And I always have some variety of flashing blind spots in my vision, but most of the time I'm able to kind of tuck them down into the bottom corner of my vision where they don't affect me. But when they do flare up, they make me unable to read or concentrate well enough to have a conversation with someone. As long as my fingers are on the correct keys on the keyboard, they don't impact my ability to write. So I guess that writing taps into a completely different part of my brain. And I'm really grateful for that. Is it that you like kind of close your eyes and just touch type your way through it then? Well, it doesn't matter if I close my eyes or not, because the spots are going to be there, whether or not my eyes are open. They just kind of flash around. So it's like a permanent uh, rave going on in my head. (laughs) I've had that before with migraines, I guess, where I get like oral kind of things. They call it an aura, I guess, around my eyes. Yeah, it's called migraine status aura. What I have is related to a migraine. But the good thing about it for me is it's rarely associated with the pain So I'll take that as a win, I guess. I do get normal migraines too, but the flashing spots are never really gone for me, ever. That goes back to my teens is the earliest I remember seeing that. Sometimes anxiety gets in the way of a writing project for me too. Like I learned to use writing as a therapeutic tool to deal with anxiety. So if a terrible thought keeps circling around and around in my mind, it can really get in the way of whatever I was planning to write about. It's hard to write about little girls playing with their dog when all I can think about is climate catastrophe, for example. So what I'll do in those cases is write about what is bothering me. And it feels kind of like an exorcism, I suppose, because I'm getting those frightened thoughts down on a page and out of my head. It doesn't cure the problem, of course, but it does make it a lot more manageable. It helps me regain my equilibrium And I've ended up with some really interesting writing because of this. Yeah, I love that. It's a way of creating some kind of action around the things that you're anxious about in terms of the climate, it sounds like. Oh, I've got all kinds of things. I've had anxiety all my life, too. That runs in the family as well. (laughs) I need to do more of that. So you're inspiring me just by saying that. 
What are some things you've done to make the work of writing better fit your abilities? I mean, I'm picturing you now with making sure your hands are oriented to the keyboard while you have your vision intact. But what are other things like that that you do to kind of work around that? Well, sometimes if my brain is just too scattered to do any writing and I can't hold my attention, I'll shift to do something else. So maybe I'll listen to a podcast about writing. There's lots of really good ones out there. Or I might go looking for calls for submission. And I might work on revising an old piece too. Sometimes if I just can't think right, I'll just tinker around with an old piece that hasn't been published yet. Sometimes I also will watch movies or TV shows, not just to mindlessly entertain myself, but I can pay close attention to what makes them work or not work. And I learned a lot about dialogue by listening to Elmore Leonard audiobooks, for example. As someone with ADHD, I don't have a good sense of object permanence. So if I don't see something, I'm likely to forget about it. So I've got a wall calendar next to my writing desk. And anytime I send something off to a magazine or anthology, I write it down on the calendar. And if there's too many empty spots on the calendar, I know it's time to send off more more stuff. Yeah, I love that practice of your Shen. I think what you're doing in terms of the calendar and what you refer to as object permanence, just like if you know you need to see things in front of you to help you remember what you've done and what you're doing next kind of thing. I see that as something that's worked really well because you are someone in our community who's often sharing, you know, publishing wins and publications that you've gotten into and also sending a lot of work out as well, too. So I think that that's something, you know, that you found those great adaptations for yourself that are allowing you to really generate as much as you can. And I love what you said, too, about listening to podcasts when just even looking at words on a screen or a page is difficult. In particular, just, you know, I was part of a conversation recently when we did the Lit Mag Love course of people saying they felt a lot of kind of shame about that, almost like they are not a writer because like they can't read as much and they can't work on the screen as much. And, you know, it's like, here you are being a writer, listening to podcasts about writing. Isn't that cool? You don't have to always be engaging with the text format. There's other formats. I don't really go out to coffee shops anymore, but that's a really good way to do it, to get an ear for dialogue, is to go where there's people having conversations and just kind of eavesdrop, not because you're snooping, but because you want to understand how the flow of conversation works for different people. Yeah, it's just like bringing that writerly sensitivity and observation to the world. So I'm curious about what kind of writing or writing practices are exciting you these days. Are there certain methods, genres, forms, or places where you feel momentum and excitement about your writing? Yeah, I love, love, love generative writing workshops. That's just my favorite. That really gets a lot out of me. And one of my favorites is one called the Fairy Tale Sessions. And that's run by Saraswati Sukumar out of England. She provides prompts based on fairy tales, which really push me outside my comfort zone. When I do these workshops and others like them, I do a lot of free writing. I just write from margin to margin without stopping or without correcting myself or anything like that. I've got notebooks full of stuff, which I wrote as quickly as I could with no time to edit or second guess myself. And I ended up writing things I never would have otherwise written. And some of that goes on to inform much longer pieces. I've had quite a few things actually published, which were conceived during that sort of workshop. 
That's wonderful. I love when you're talking about margin to margin, people can't see this. I want to describe that you had your hand kind of running like almost like a typewriter back and forth across the page. So I can really picture just a chock-a-block full of books. Oh yeah. Oh, I've got books everywhere. Like here's the current one I'm writing in. It's a purple hardback notebook that my partner got me. It was handmade. So it was a special gift and it's just filled with my random scribblings. <laughs> I wish people could see this, but we don't do videos of the podcast. Unfortunately, one of the questions I want to get at with people too, when talking about limitations and disabilities is the idea of kind of writerly forebears as well too. So are there some writers, artists, and people in your life, alive, not alive, related or not, that taught you through their writing with disability and limitations? Oh, I've got to give a shout out to Amanda LaDuke for this one. I first encountered her at the Festival of Literary Diversity, or The Fold, and I've since worked with her a bit when she was the Mabel Pugh Writer-in-Residence at McMaster University. And she wrote a fabulous book called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. And looking back at my older stuff, I don't really see very many characters with disabilities of any sort. I guess I was thinking, oh, I have to make all my characters perfect and put them in these situations. But these days, disability informs a lot of my writing, even if I don't necessarily spell it out as such. Yeah, it's not the first time Amanda's been on the podcast. It's also not the first time this year, I don't think, that Amanda's been referenced, or not this calendar year, but in the last 12 months. So that's wonderful to give a shout out to Amanda LaDuke, who I also, did I meet through The Fold? No, I guess I met through Room originally, but met in person at The Fold. Yeah, I got to meet her last year for the first time. There was AugerCon, actually, hosted by Augur Magazine in Toronto. And it was a great event, too, because it was like, no mask, no con. So everyone wore masks in there, and I actually did feel safe. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's a really important thing to continue bringing up in terms of accessibility to spaces, that masking is a mandatory part of that, of making our spaces more accessible. What do you wish people would sense or know about writing with disability and limitations? I think there is many ways to write as there are writers, and there is many ways to be disabled as there are disabled people. For some, the disability is going to get in the way, but for others, it's going to fuel it. So Frida Kahlo became an artist as a way of coping with her disabilities, and in a way, I became a writer because of mine. My precarious health has forced me to become adaptable. I used to be a professional dancer until a hip disorder took that away from me. Then I switched to being a visual artist until I lost access to my painting studio during COVID lockdowns. And then menopause hit me really hard in 2020, and I was in constant pain, and I had no idea what to do with myself. But then I remembered I used to write a whole lot in the 1990s, and I decided to give it a try again. And I discovered it's something I could do and do well in spite of my health issues. Some people are very proscriptive about writing. They say it can only be done one way. And some say you have to write every single day. And some say you have to write everything by hand. And some say that you have to get up extra early to write. But those are going to work for a whole lot of people, whether they're disabled or not. And as I said before, there's just as many ways to write as there are people. Yeah, I find there's even like shaming sometimes around reading, like listening to audiobooks isn't the same as reading a book. And it's just Yeah, I hear that a lot too. Like another thing that often comes up is in a lot of writing workshops, they say you have to read your work aloud. 
And I understand that as a person who can hear. But there are deaf writers who have maybe never heard a word in their life, and that's going to mean absolutely nothing to them because the written language is not their first language. It's a very different language than speaking sign language, so the rhythms are going to be completely different for them. So I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I would be very curious. We have a bunch of writers in our community coming up, and none of whom are deaf writers, but I I would be curious how reading out loud, even signing Maybe that would be something that would be useful for them. I'm not sure. I would love to hear if anyone out there listening knows the answer to that question and that thought. But also, I'm going to keep my attention to looking for writers maybe who would want to share that with us. Again, I'm coming here not at all as an expert, but someone who's like wanting to talk to writers about what they're doing. And then it's like it's sort of just my own curiosity and trying to figure out how to make more space for people as well. So, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's good to bring up. Is nothing to do with us specifically, but as part of the bigger conversation. It's just how do we bring more writers in? A lot of people talk about ADHD right now, and there's a lot of stuff happening on social media about that. And here are the things to do and the things that you should know. And so I wondered if I could bring that question back. Like, what do you wish people would sense or know about writing with ADHD specifically? I recently finished the draft of my first novel. And When I first started writing it, my chapters were very, very short. And I had some people say, oh, why are your chapters so short? And I said, well, because I got ADHD. (laughs) I just want to write it and then get to the next part because I want to know what happens next. I think that the shorter chapters will actually appeal to other readers who have ADHD too. So I haven't really spoken to a whole lot of other writers with ADHD to see if they tend to write more flash fiction and short chapters or what. But that being said, I'm currently working on a novella and it's very long, continuous narrative. It's no real break. So I don't know. (laughs) That's the thing about ADHD, short attention span or hyper-focus, right? It could go either way. When I'm writing, and as an example in my novel, a lot of times they'll say, write what you see or write what you hear. And I'm like, well, some of these things aren't going to really scan. I remember years ago, there's a book called Perfume by Patrick Suskind. I hope I pronounced that right. A German writer. And the whole book is basically written within the realm of scent. And my partner has no sense of smell. He's never had a sense of smell. And I went, read this book and tell me if it makes sense to you. Because I wanted to know. And he was able to understand it kind of obliquely, but he just kind of presumed it was some sort of magic or alchemy that he didn't personally know, and he was able to appreciate it that way. But it really made me think about including other senses. So when I write, I'm like, maybe I've got a blind writer, so I need to write something that's more tactile or or scent-based, or maybe I've got a deaf writer and the sounds aren't going to make sense, so I'll put other things. So in my story, I write from the point of view of different characters For instance, there's a snake, and I was like, well, how do snakes sense the world? They don't really sense it. Like, they can see heat signatures, so all my vision was related to heat signatures when it was from the point of view of the snake and vibrations and the tastes of different hormones and particles. And every character, I would approach that way. So I hope that will make it more accessible to a wider range of people. Yeah, I love that because, you know, I'm all about writing through the senses. It's something that I'm very fascinated about and I teach a lot too. You think not just about embodying your character for people with 
access to all five senses or six senses or however many senses we have, but also you're making considerations for different abilities in sense. And it sounds like it's been really great for that perspective coming through your partner's inability to smell, which because we had some tech problems, I had a little bit of time to look up the term is called anosmia, the partial or full loss of smell. And yeah, I mean, how interesting that someone wrote a book that's all about the sense of smell, because it is one that's not as accessed in my experience. Often I'm coaching writers to be like, okay, but what does it smell like? Not just what does it look like? And maybe what does it feel like? Like getting into other senses, but going all in on one sense that someone can't access would kind of remove them as a reader for your book. It was a fun experiment. (laughs) I asked you to bring a piece that relates to your disability limitations, whether that's indirectly or directly. Would you like to read for us now? Sure. This is the first part of a story called Sybil Has a Heart of Gold, which was published in the Thames Review last year. Sybil had a heart of lead. It rested in her belly like a tumor, impervious to stomach acids and digestive enzymes. The heart was heavy within her. Arrhythmic stops and starts murmured through the clogged artery of her alimentary canal. Her body kept on trying to reject the heart, but it would not be budged. Wherever she went, the groans of her distended belly preceded her, and jeering men pointed or jabbed one another in the ribs. Whenever someone asked her when her baby was due, Sybil snarled. Sybil had a heart of lead. No one believed her. The doctor said the groaning of her abdomen wasn't the beating of a heart. No heart beats like this. No one has a heart in their stomach. He refused to test her with the echocardiogram, but he gave her pills. She swallowed them and they stuck in her throat. Still came pain like a heart attack, the flutter in the stomach, the knifing wound to the bowels, the browning vision. Sometimes the leaden heart weighed down her digestive system so that it was paralyzed for weeks. Her chest was as tight as her waistband. Then bile burned at the back of her throat. She couldn't sleep sitting down without a river of acid corroding her trachea. So she took more pills and slept sitting up. She ate prunes and bran, but her heart of lead would not pass. Sybil had a heart of lead, purple circles beneath her eyes and dull, dry skin. Her stomach was a cage for pain. She wore loose dresses and searched for a cure. Emetics didn't work. Laxatives did nothing. The doctor sent her to a shrink, but the heart stayed the same size. She ate ice cream to soothe her throat, chugged Pepto-Bismol for the heartburn. Bucket in hand, she wept on the toilet, certain she'd been cursed. In her heart of hearts, she knew it would take alchemy or witchcraft to heal her heartache. She went with black magic. She read in a grimoire bound in human skin that another heart may neutralize this dyspepsia. If another heart were to pulse inside her, it would beat at her vagus nerve like an angry maid beating a dirty rug. And then maybe the leaden heart would turn to gold. Wow, talk about embodiment. I really felt that. My gosh. That was from the fairy tale sessions too. I can't even remember the story that uh, <laughs> that informed that one to begin with. I enjoyed writing that. I just, I'm like, no, let's just dig deeper and deeper and deeper and let's get really into the physicality of this. I love all the illusion, like the tight waistband and the maid beating the carpet too. There is something 
very visceral. And I guess in particular, the waistband was like really the sense of touch, talking, speaking about having different senses evoked in the writing too. So, so good. Well, thank you. What I've read of your work, a lot of it has this kind of otherworldly fairy. This definitely felt very fairy tale-esque. I guess I can't put my finger on it, but except for maybe the repetition in it too. So yeah, it brings it into this really cool what if space or this otherworldly space. So thanks again. You're welcome. I get the word visceral very often from my writing and Maybe that's coming from my various disabilities too, because uh, living in this body is very visceral, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Thinking of it as, you know, of course, it can be very painful, but also that kind of superpower that comes from having those kind of deep feeling experiences. You evoked Frida Kahlo before, who also strikes me as an artist who's very visceral. I'm using air quotes here, but who probably gets that phrase a lot too. And clearly also came through a lot of pain and disability. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what helps you move, rest, heal, grieve, and celebrate your efforts, wins, and losses? This is one of the questions that I'm not entirely sure I understand. I guess I just keep on keeping on. I'm not really the sort of person that celebrates because I've gotten published in a magazine or anything, and neither do I get upset if a story is declined. I just send it off somewhere else, or maybe I'll revise it and then send it somewhere else again. But writing is a way of putting my anxieties to work for me, and as long as I can keep writing, I've got somewhere to put those nervous energies. I've had people tell me, oh, you need to celebrate, and I'm like, well... How? I mean, writing is kind of like celebrating to me, I guess, in a weird sort of way. Yeah, the writing is the reward. I, I love that. That's something I actually heard early on from, I think, Caroline Adderson, who was one of the mentors, but not mine, but in a program that I took at the Writer's Studio. It was basically like, you need to enjoy actually writing because that's the job. <laughs> it's like it, the, the only thing you enjoy is the publishing and the celebrity and the readings and the events. I mean, that's part of the job, but the real job is the writing itself. Well, sometimes writing is such a slog, but there's other times where it feels magical and I'm in the zone, I guess you could call it. I just uh, write and flies out of me and I'll look and I'm like, whoa, I wrote that? Wow, my writing is smarter than I am. I feel like that's true too, though, for all of us, like the opportunity of writing means that there's so much rewriting and it's like the compounding of all of our intelligence, like the layers of intelligence that we have that we don't necessarily have in those moments, especially thinking of brain fog moments too, where we can't really quite, it's on the tip of our brain, but then the writing allows us to kind of slowly peel back all that wisdom. I think there's a French term called uh, l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the stairs, like the thing you think of, oh, I should have said this. Well, when you're writing, you get to go and do that. So, you know, like, oh, I forgot to do this thing. And you get to do it by going back and revising and editing. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard that term before. And I'm adding it to my collection. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. So, You did mention already your approach to rejection and how you handle feedback, both good and bad. I think it sounds like it's sort of like with a little bit of equilibrium, like, okay, okay, on to the next. But do you have any advice for writers, especially writers who identify as having ADHD or chronic illness, disability, on handling good and bad feedback about writing? Well, first of all, you don't have to accept any feedback. You just don't. It's okay to ignore it. 
And sometimes the people that are giving you your feedback are really not your target audience. And that's okay. I wrote an essay a while back about my memories of being a kid whose father was often away working. And one of my workshoppers said it was missing my thoughts on what my dad was doing while he was away. And with my particular flavor of neurodivergence, it meant I never actually considered what he was doing while he wasn't around. So the feedback didn't make sense to me. I wasn't about to make something up to correct the oversight because, well, that would be writing fiction at that point, And I wasn't writing a fictional piece. But on a related note, if a character in a story is disabled, you really don't have to include why they're disabled if you don't want to. Disabled characters can simply exist as they are in a story, just like they do in the real world. I mean, no one needs a backstory for why the hero is bulging with muscles. So why should they question if the character is missing a leg or has a persistent cough? Yeah, that's a great point. I'm curious also what child would be thinking about what a parent is doing outside neurodivergent or not. Like, it just seems like an odd request to make of your writing. I don't know. I I thought it was quite strange myself. And I remember early on, Oh, going back to the early 1990s when I very first started getting things workshopped. And I thought that I had to take everything that was told to me as something that I had to work into my writing. And I remember rewriting a story and I was like, well, I don't think this is right, but I'll do what you said. And it came off so false to me. And then I got it workshopped later and they said, why don't you do it this way? And it was the way that I had it in the first place. And I think that's when I learned my lesson. And maybe even, I mean... I was asking you for advice for writers and maybe I'll kind of lean one as well too, which is like, that is kind of the process too. Even if, you know, we can tell people, oh, don't pay attention to everything that happens in workshop, but sometimes you just kind of have to learn it yourself. You're like, okay, I'm going to try this. And then that experience that you had where it's like, oops, someone told me to go back to my original way. (laughs) So I should have listened to myself. It's hard to know that until you've kind of done that, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I've got Some work that I'm writing right now is written in non-standard English. And I had some people like, oh, no, you can't have the narration written that way. You can only have the dialogue that way. And I was very firmly in the camp of, nope, I want this to be an immersive experience. So, for example, there's a podcast called The Old Gods of Appalachia, which is really recommended if you're into horror and uh, like backwoods stories, especially. And the narration of that is done in the same kind of language as the dialogue. And that's an idea that I wanted to keep in the cycle of stories I'm writing now. So I want to ask you to join our quick lit round, if you'd like to, which is where we complete the following sentences. And it's a misnomer or sometimes correct and sometimes incorrect name because people can go long or short. It's fine. It doesn't have to be quick. But the first sentence to complete is being a writer is being a writer is kind of like being a gambling addict only instead of spending all your money to win a big prize you're spending all your time writing to win a small one (laughs) that's probably my favorite answer to that question so far (laughs) (laughs) literary magazines are they're as varied as the people who write for them so there's good ones and bad ones too (laughs) that's so true Editing requires? Requires the ability to look at your work critically as well as with fresh eyes. How do you get fresh eyes? I put something aside for a while. So for instance, I just had a story published 
last week that I wrote 30 years ago. <laughs> so that's as fresh as you get, right? <laughs> I edited, I revised it a little bit, sent it off, and it was picked up by the first place I sent it to 30 years later. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like an old you, like it's like you publish it on behalf of someone else. Does it feel a bit like that? Kind of. I remember reading it and going, hey, this isn't bad, but it, it needs to be modernized just a little bit. So <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh, Shen. I don't say that you have to hold on to things for 30 years before setting them off, though. That's uh, that's not the advice. No, 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 no. If you have stuff from 30 years ago, maybe take a look at it and see. <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> Rejection for a writer means? I think it means very different things for very different writers. Some people, it's completely crushing. For instance, I just, I'm on a Patreon for the writer... His name is Billy, but he used to write under the name of Poppy Zed Bright in the 1990s. And he doesn't want to write anymore because he received a rejection. And it's like, no, I'm not going through this anymore because I put my heart and soul into it. So some people, they really tie everything into their story. For me, I'm like, all right, on to the next thing. So it's going to be really different depending on the person. Writing community is? I think it's great for motivation and for solidarity. Like, if it wasn't for writing community, it'd be really hard for me to get anything written. I mean, honestly, I've got my partner who is very supportive, but I really value the, like, I've got people in regular workshop groups that I meet with, and it's very, very helpful. Like, I feel like I'm helping them and they're helping me. So it, there's a, a synergy going on that I love. And it makes you feel a whole lot less alone otherwise than just sort of sitting in my tiny room. I've got my pet chinchilla. If it wasn't for him, then I'd be alone most of the time while I'm writing. <laughs> oh my gosh, your pet chinchilla is so cute. <laughs> I saw a little video recently. He's sleeping behind me right now in a box. Well, thank you so much, Shan. Thank you, Rachel. You can find Chantelle Powell on Mastodon and at her sporadically updated blog, both of which I link in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 91. So you'd find it at rachelthompson.co slash 91. So that was, as I mentioned, probably my favorite answer for what it means to be a writer, spending all of your time for very little reward. It's true. And yet we often enjoy the time. Listening back to our conversation, I want to correct myself when I said something about writers needing to enjoy the essential act of writing. Of course, we don't need to enjoy it all of the time. And it is sometimes a slog, as Chantel said. I believe writing community is the antidote to those times when it's a slog, by the way. And I'm delighted to count Shan as a member of my writing community. So keep track of this feed. Subscribe to get more episodes with brilliant writers who create practices that work for them and their own disabilities and limitations in the upcoming string of episodes. And I hope that you'll pick up ideas for your practice and how you might work around anything in your life that makes it so you cannot write in the often prescribed formula of writing every day on a set schedule, a wrong-headed and exclusionary prescription. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. My producer for this episode is the wonderful Melly Walker, who helped me with the questions. Thank you so much, Melly, for that help. Sound editing is by Adam Linder. Transcripts by Dia Jaffrey. You can learn more about my work to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love 
digest. Yes, I'm changing my newsletter into a more bite-sized, info-packed digest with all of the love of my former love letters, but including prompts and craft tips, publication news. The letter going out tomorrow has two recent publications from Chantal Powell. They are still sent every week and filled with support for your writing practice. So you can sign up for that at rachelthompson.co slash letters. If this episode encouraged you to get creative about your writing practice or maybe adopt a chinchilla, they are adorable. I would love to hear all about it. You can always email me at hello at rachelthompson.co and tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or telling them to search for Write, Publish and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to write in your own time and way. Chantel Powell spoke to me from the Haldiman track, territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples, Kitchener, Ontario. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.